You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and I have three great guests for you tonight. First, we're going to hear from our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal. But tonight, Ron and I are going to be talking about gin. Then food consultant, cook and creative, Ali Dunworth, is going to tell us about her culinary career. And finally, at the end of the show, Caroline Gray has details about the summer issue of Easy Food magazine. Before that, let me tell you how to get in touch with me here on the show. You can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So, as I said, Ron Forrestal is here tonight and we're going to talk about gin. Can you hear the excitement? in my voice. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio this evening and we're going to talk about one of my favourite things, gin. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, although we're a wine company, we also sell spirits and nearly everything else. And gin has just had an explosion of popularity in the last uh, two years probably, really. But this year in particular, it's just been... Uh, it's the number one spirit and uh, as far as premium spirits are concerned, it's the absolute number one. I have been drinking gin for a number of years, so that would have been Gordon's gin, and if you were feeling really flush and fancy, it would have been Bombay Sapphire. Mm. And Hendrix, you know, I'm just not into veg in my drink, so with the cucumber and all of that, I never mm. was a Hendrix person. But now there's a whole menu there. There's hundreds yes, yeah. of them, isn't there? There is, there is. There's probably, uh, there's probably about 20 ones that you can you'd probably recognise if you've seen them. Um, with Hendrix and that, and with you know, Dingle and, and Brockman's. And, and, but this one's been added every week. We literally have somebody arrive every week trying to sell gin. And are they all Irish? Not at all. There's only a handful are Irish um, out of that. And, and it's, it's un- I'll tell you a bit. Of, we've said the Dingle example as one. That kind of gives you a good feel for where gin has got in the country. Uh, Dingle Distillery um, started operations about six years ago uh, with the view to producing Dingle whiskey. Uh, the problem with producing whiskey is that there's a wait and there's a wait of at least five years before you can actually uh, bottle the stuff and sell it. So what do you do in the meantime? So Dingle needed to find something to do. So they said, OK, let's make a vodka and a gin because it's, it's not that difficult. It's fairly straightforward. It takes no ageing. It can be sold immediately once it's distilled. So vodka and gin are effectively the same thing. It's the same grape spirit, grain spirit that's used for both, or actually spirit from anything, um, uh, as long as you can make alcohol. And then it's what happens to it after that. They're all distilled twice, three times in some cases, with the addition of uh, botanicals, whole variety of hundreds of different things can be added to them to give them flavour. And, uh, and juniper berries, of course, which is the more important one. And uh, then that gives the gin very different feels. And what it did, it just caught people at the right time. Um, and it's not just Ireland, the UK, or have, have seen the same explosion of popularity. But what it got here was that people, what we feel happened is that what people don't go out as much, but when they do go out, they want something nice. So bars really took on to it very quickly. It's not just a, a, you know, a flash hotel thing. It's not a five-star hotel thing. You go into any number of bars in Newcastle West and you'll get a nice big glass with loads of ice, lime, good tonic and 
a gin, probably a choice between maybe six or eight gins, in probably most of the bars in town. And that's phenomenal. That, that's that's huge change in a few years. Abs- it, it absolutely is, because I'm just thinking back to when I, whenever mm. I first moved to Newcastle West, even these fancy bubble glasses that they're they're serving it in now, yes, I've yeah. really only seen them around in the past well, year or so. Yes, but now Hendrix really has to be thanked for a lot of this because Hendrix was the real one that started off to push it out. Now, if you take Hendrix as a cost for products, so if you go into a bar and normally drink a gin tonic, that'll probably cost you around seven euros. But if you're drinking Hendrix and and a premium tonic, it's going to cost at least ten. So that's a huge jump for, for one drink. Um, but as I say, people aren't going out as much and when they want to go out, they want to do something nice. So um, Dingle then started producing vodka and gin. Vodka is pretty slow because vodka is a different kind of drink. Uh, but gin, their gin sales are phenomenal. They just they can't believe it. Uh, it started as a, as a filler product that they had. They did it really well now. The gin is a very good gin. Uh, it does really well in the tasting tests. It does really well. It's not overly expensive. But it's a huge part of their business now, which they never intended it to be at the start. But now it's it's not as important as their whiskey because that can give them the kind of you know the that'll give them the reputation that they need in the long term. But really, as an intern product, it's going to be there for a long time. And the packaging is very good with it as well. It is, yeah. Dingle is lovely. It's a very distinctive bottle. Um, very tell where it is now. We do a lot of business in Kerry. There's a huge um, um, support for the product in Kerry. Um, most all pubs would would stock single gin and vodka actually and that's been great for them and it's pushed out to do very well in Dublin um, and then for you have another one then uh, the, probably the second most popular Irish one at the moment is this gunpowder Irish uh, uh, gunpowder uh, gin from Drumshambo in County Leitrim and it's a very distinctive bottle blue bottle not cheap at all much more expensive than the dingle one but a smashing product, a really, really good product. And this is probably the best one that we're producing in the country at the moment. Well, what would you say to somebody that says, look, gin is gin? Like, what's the difference in the taste between the gunpowder and the dingle? It's all probably about complexity, really. If you take your standard Gordon's, you know, which is a very good gin, um, um, Gordon's, you know, Bombay probably better, or CDC, our own Irish one, um, they're, they're very, they're delicate, they're nice, they're, they're a good gin and tonic. But when you get to these ones, the flavours that you get from them are much more complex afterwards. And like some of them are using up to 20, 30, 40 different ingredients in this second distillation, which gives it the, the botanicals, which gives it the flavours. Everything from almond to heather to peat in some cases. It's just remarkable what they're using. Um, and they're all kind of secret recipes that they put together. And it, it, it gives them very different tastes. Um, and... It's, I think it's amazing. It's just amazing the following they get. But again, it's all about the packaging. And it's all the fact that the pubs have taken it seriously and they're doing it properly. The pubs are serving it properly. And the tonic is vital. That's the, if you notice now, people were paying a couple of euros for a Schreps tonic. Now they're happy to pay three euros for a fever tree tonic, which is the number one tonic now. Um, but then you have a number of those like Thomas Henry. There's one called Poacher's Well, which is an Irish one from, uh, it's from Wexford, I think, or Watford. Um, it's down that part of the country anyway. and uh, they're all doing very well um, and the bubble is very good and the ice is really important the ice needs to be very cold it can't be watery ice that you've had sitting around for a couple of hours all these things and people are very discerning and people have them at home they have nice glasses at home and they have the gin they buy it in the supermarket like it's very easy to come across so the whole thing has just has taken off 
I have come across people then that said they thought they didn't like gin and tonic, but it turns out it was the Schweppes tonic that they didn't like. Mm. So now they do like a gin and tonic because it is the fever tree or it is the Thomas Henry or the poach as well, that that has really brought that flavour to a different level as well as the gin itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the Schweppes, nothing, nothing to go out about Schweppes. People, people love it and it's, it's still the biggest selling tonic in the world. But I suppose the thing about the Schweppes tonic is it's particularly dry. It gives you a real dry feeling when you, when you taste it. It gives you that real hit at the start. Whereas these tonics tend to be a bit more subtle and they probably have better bubble because the people who make these tonics have realised the more carbonation we can get into it, the better the drink looks when it's sitting there and the longer the bubble lasts. Um, and the fever tree, you know, have an elderflower um, um, tonic, they have light tonic, they have Mediterranean tonic. Um, you know, they're, they're doing things really well, but they're absolutely just amazing. Like every bar now in the country will have fever tree tonic on the shelf. I, I, I'd say bar a handful of ones. Yeah, I'd say you're absolutely right. I'm a bit of a weirdo, though, because I drink it with orange juice. But what I have found is um, the short cross gin in Northern Ireland oh, yes. versus the dingle gin that if I have short cross, there's no alcohol taste at all, whereas mm. the dingle, you do get more of an alcohol taste of it. And like short cross is, is much more expensive. Much more expensive. It's double the price. Yeah, Virtually. unreal. Yeah. And it does come in beautiful packaging, I have mm. to say. Um, the bottle shape is not dissimilar to this one here yeah. that you have, the King Soho. Tell us a bit about that. This is actually a brand new one. We just took it in the last uh, month for the first time. Uh, the King of Soho was a very famous guy who in Soho in London um, who ran a number of um, uh, interesting um, uh, events uh, at night in London and was uh, it's his, uh, his grandson that's producing the gin. And it's a great story, um, and the gin is extremely good. It's not cheap, um, but the packaging is very good. It's very memorable, and it's all about producing. When, when you go to a bar, you're going to a city bar where you have 40 gins up there. They just got to stand out. They got to, you know, they have to stand their own. There's no point having a, a dark bottle that nobody can read over the corner because nobody's going to drink it. So you have to have something that stands out and has a bit of a story behind it. Are they all the same percentage in terms of alcohol or in strength or some of them? No, they jump a bit. Uh, they have to be 40. They can't be any less than that uh, to, to be called London Dry Gin. But then some of them jump to 42 uh, and there's, there's a coupling get up around 46. But that's really high now. That's really high alcohol level. Um, and it's a funny thing, but like if, you look at, if you look at a drink, if, so if you go to a bar and have a, 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 we have a glass here, so if you have one of those balloon glasses full of ice, and we reckon that about 25% of the gin you don't drink at all. Because either you let it melt and then try and drink it, <laughs> or that you, it's sitting in the bottom of the glass. So it's, um, it's, it's probably not the best way to drink it, really. A long glass actually is a much more effective way to drink it. I, I've been calling these glasses bubble glasses, but they're balloon glasses. They're balloon glasses. <laughs> uh, actually, the, the official name for them, the kind of shape they are, is a Grand Coronas. They're actually a Spanish wine glass, really, is how they started off to be. But then you have, you have Hendrix, which has uh, supposed to have uh, sliced cucumber and black pepper. I think people like those for maybe one of those. Very seldom we see a couple of people drink two of them. Uh, probably lime or lemon, a uh, couple of wedges, and with them squeezed into the glass first, and then put into the ice uh, with the tonics, probably the nicest way to drink any of them. Great. 
And they do all have kind of signature yeah, type, um, like the short cross. Jim, the first time I had it, it was short cross with the fever tree, a sprig of rosemary, and it had pierced uh, a South African gooseberry. Wow. So it looked great. Yes. Yes. And like you have Monkey 47, which is a very expensive one, uh, which is actually a smaller bottle than all the rest of them. It's a 50cl bottle, costing around 60 euros. Yeah, that's expensive, isn't it? It's very expensive. Tell us about it. Where is it from? Um, I'll just look here to tell you where it's from. Uh, it's Germany. And it's the Monkey 47 comes from the 47 different botanicals used in its distillation, in its secondary distillation. Um, and the serving suggestion for it is that it has a slightly orange tinge, the, the gin. Uh, they use quite a bit of citrus in it, but they also use orange in it. So you're supposed to serve it with orange. Um, and it's actually lovely because I had a bottle of this at home and, and um, my wife and a few friends like a gin and tonic. So we had some gin because I get bottles of gin to the people who try to sell us. And um, they really like that. It's pretty strong now as well. So it's, uh, it's um, a little stronger than the rest of them. I can't see... It's around 44%. Okay, yeah, so, okay, yeah. And that makes a big difference when it's... Uh, and that wouldn't go very far. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But, it, like, the best time to buy those, 47% actually, but when you best time to buy those, um, to be honest, to pick out the more unusual ones is probably when you're away or somewhere because they're very expensive here. Um, whereas, like, the Dingle, Hendrix, Gunpowder are all pretty affordable when you get up into that level. And there's a Javine one, one, a French one, uh, which is made from grape spirit, which is really nice. Um, but it's a 70-odd euro bottle of gin. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it's it? It's a lot, yeah. yeah because I did, I, for my aunt's 70th last year, I got her sent a bottle of the short cross gin, and it's around 50 euros or 50 pounds, mm. which, you know, that's grand when it's a present. But whenever you're going through duty-free from somewhere and you see the bottle of Gordon's for special 20 quid or something, yeah. if you're drinking a lot of gin, it's hard to go past that in favour of the other uh, one, yeah, the 60 that's euros. The, the most specific. But the thing is, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a huge advantage to... to to bars because people become more discerning they become you know where they but we were in a bar in Newcastle West recently myself and my wife on a Friday evening a guy gets put the counter and orders a pint of Guinness and a gin and tonic the guy who owns the bar turned around and pointed at the range of gins that you could have um, and he's like God do you mean gin and tonic and he said actually no I, I, so his wife arrives up looks at them all and uh, picked one had that then the guy who owns it said will you have what kind of tonic do you want and he said I'd listen you know, it's getting very complicated now all of a sudden. But no, she had favourite tree tonic and a big glass and limes in it and it looked fantastic. And it was just a whole, it's a whole theatre, it's an experience, you know. And, and if you're not going to, if you're only going to go out, like, but like I'd be maybe once every two or three weeks, then people are happy to pay that a little bit more yeah, for absolutely. something that's done right. You have one more here, Brockman's. Brockman's was an English gin. I'd uh, never heard of that, and I've heard of it two or three times, literally yeah. in the past two or three days. It's actually fast becoming one of the most popular ones, um, particularly in the UK, and particularly in Europe, in mainland Europe, as an, as an English gin, it's probably one of the best ones. Not that expensive, but the same kind of price as Hendrix. Okay, and what do they suggest that you serve it with? Um, they, they have herbs. Um, I swear it's rosemary as well. Um, a sprig of herbs that come out of it and some black pepper as well yeah what's the deal with the black pepper I just can't I, I just it, I, I, it's beyond like, me do you get the grinder and yeah, grind it in or is it the pepper co- you actually grind, yeah, grind the pepper in. into it wow okay yeah. I haven't I must give that a taste now I haven't done that 
Yes, you'd wonder whether it's worth ruining the good gin and tonic with that. I know, but just <laughs> you need to be sober to taste somebody else's that likes exactly, it. Yeah. Yes. Is it the UK or England that gin originated in? Well, uh, they say that uh, the UK, it's all uh, London uh, originally, which gave it the name London Dry Gin as a style of gin. But uh, it was used a lot um, uh, in the Commonwealth, used a lot in um, in India particularly, and, and it had a medicinal purpose really. Um, it was the tonic they were trying to get people to drink, which had quinine in it, which was uh, against malaria. And uh, the gin was a way of people drinking tonic. Easier. Okay. And that was a lot of the purpose of it, which obviously took a life of its own after that. And it, uh, it stood on its own as being a very acceptable drink. It's been around for absolute years. You know, it's been in production for over 400 years. Years ago, whenever we'd have gone to the campsites in France on holiday as children, the adults all would have been drinking the gin and tonics because it stopped the midges biting apart or the mosquitoes biting apart. Well, if you d- if you were a gin and tonic drinker, yeah, you didn't get bitten. Really? Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's even better. And I wanted to ask you then about tonic water because Nash's would have produced tonic water at a time. Nash's would have produced tonic water. At, uh, yes, yeah, up till probably about fifteen years ago was probably the last of it. Yeah, so they were ahead of their time doing that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Listen, there's a lot of different tonics. Like you take Schweppes, you have Club produce a tonic as well. Uh, Nash's did a number of, of uh, independent uh, bottlers in the country who produced tonic. It's not a complicated product to produce. It's very hard to get it right now. Okay, but that's, um, that's always the secret, getting <laughs> it, it right. And it's about, it's about marketing, it's about presence in the market. You know, It's just that if you give yourself a certain pitch level, then you're treated slightly differently. And people are so much more brand aware now. They are, and plus all these tonics that, that we have here, Thomas Henry and the fever trees, are all 200 mils because they've realised that the gins are getting stronger, uh, they're getting more potent um, to drink, and that you need to have big glasses, so you need big tonics. The, the old baby tonic that you'd have seen behind the bar isn't just enough, that you need a bigger one. Well, that's given me a bit of a thirst now, Ron. So <laughs> we'll do a bit of a cheers here with the balloon glasses. Thanks a million for coming in and talking about that. And no, forestal.ie is the website. All your contact yes, yeah, information absolutely. is there. And if they want to order wine or any of your spirits, they can get in touch with you. Thanks very much, Sharon. Good to talk to you as always. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, Ron Forrestal and I were talking about the gin explosion we're enjoying here in Ireland at the moment. Well, I'm certainly enjoying it. And still to come on the programme tonight, I'll be talking to Easy Food magazine editor Caroline Gray. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And now it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Next now, we're going to talk to a food consultant cook and creative. Ali Dunworth plays a vital behind-the-scenes role in many of our favourite cookery shows and food festivals, and we're going to talk to her now to find out more about the culinary projects she's currently involved in. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
great to have you on the programme, Ali. You have a very diverse range of skills whenever it comes to the culinary world. Will you just tell us a bit about yourself and your background to start off with, please? Um, well, I yeah, I work within the food world um, and I suppose it gets a bit confusing because I cover so many different areas, but I came back to Ireland just nearly five years ago now and prior to that I'd been in London for 10 years where I ended up working in food TV as my main kind of role over there. But um, when I moved back to Ireland, it wasn't necessarily something that was a full-time year-round job here. So I suppose I, st- I started to diversify anyway, but when I got back here, I really had to make those changes and kind of start looking for different ways to make a living, but still doing stuff that I enjoyed. It all sounds very exciting whenever you're involved in television and the media. What sort of programmes did you work on? Um, I was really lucky, I guess. I worked, I st- my first proper job was probably Saturday Kitchen. Um, and it was back in the days when it was Anthony Worrell Thompson. So that was my first job. And I went on then to do two series with Nigella Lawson. And then I did Great British Menu. I worked in a show called Market Kitchen, which was a long running show that we kind of, that was a great job in TV because it came back every, it was pretty consistent, you know, because we were always freelance. So you moved around a lot, but it was, they're always good shows. And whenever I heard you talking to somebody else last week, you were talking about something that you learned from Nigella Lawson whenever you're out and about for something to eat. Tell us about that. I learned so much from Nigella. But one of the things was I was on Bobby Care and I was talking about um, condiments. And she, we, I think we cooked a ham or something. And then we said, let's go eat outside because that's the kind of thing she would do when you were filming and she had a tube of mustard in her handbag at all times, pretty much. So, you know, if she was ever stuck and something was a little bit bland, if you were traveling and you had a bad sandwich, you could always stick a bit of Coleman's in. So it's like, you can buy them in the shop. They're a little tube. It's like a bigger than a lip gloss size. So yeah, I've kind of been doing that for a long time because it was a pretty handy tip. And the sea salt was the other one then. Yeah, sea salt is my own thing because um, my one of my friends just found a tiny little Malden tin that you can, it's just a little metal tin that's, I don't know, the size of like smaller than your thumb. So I always keep that topped up to carry around with me as well. So it's the kind of thing that in my, my makeup bag will be half makeup and the other half will be little. And I, if you go somewhere, they have nice sachets of something. I'll always grab a stash of them. Um, I suppose it's the equivalent of collecting hotel miniatures or something. <laughs> It's just food miniatures. It's great advice, I think, to have because, you know, the salt can jazz anything up, as you say, whenever something's bland, put a bit of sea salt on it and Bob's your uncle. I think also when you work in food, if you go somewhere and you feel like you need to season it, you don't always want to ask for salt because you feel embarrassed. You don't want to insult anybody. So you can just simply sprinkle a little bit on yourself. Tell us then about some of the chefs in Ireland that you worked with, because that's a fairly impressive list that you have from the UK. Which of our fantastic Irish chefs have you had the pleasure of working on various projects with? Well, I was, it was really lucky and kind of great timing when I, I was in Australia before I came back to Ireland and I emailed Claude and McKenna because actually my mom was saying, you know, she's in the Lions and she's in Arnott's and she seems to be, she just moved back from Italy as well. And I knew her a little bit from the TV shows in London. So I dropped Claude an email and said, this is what I do. Um, I'm coming home to Ireland. You know, would you have any work or projects? And she kind of replied straight away. and went, it's so random. I actually um, 
needs help with a TV show. So it was for RTE, it was called Food Fight. So it was Clodagh versus Derry Clark. So it was like a Christmas um, special. And that was the first thing I did when I came home. And Clodagh and I worked really well together. We had a great time. And I, I worked with her full time for almost two years. So we, you know, that was a lot of fun because she, it was actually great. She knew everybody. So she introduced me to quite a lot of the chefs in Ireland and kind of the food scene here because I'd been away for so long. So she'd be kind of the major, I suppose, influence on what I've done in Ireland, which is great. And then, I mean, I do the restaurant, which is like, you know, on TV3, which is a fantastic show. Um, the chefs on that are brilliant, Stephen and Gary and Louise. And I love working with them every year. I kind of look forward to it. Um, and then on What What Are You Eating, which is another show that I do. Um, Hilary O'Hagan is our series chef on that and she's a fantastic chef and very good to work with and through her I got involved in Ahru I don't know if you've come across Ahru I have yes so Ahru is a group that came together a couple of years ago um, and the idea is to talk about empowering females in the kitchen or bringing more notice to the fact that we might have a shortage of chefs but we particularly have a shortage of female chefs or that female chefs don't always stay in the industry so Ahri was a symposium that we started last summer and then through that I've become you know got got to know like say Jess from Kai and lots of really great female talent from that so there's lots going on in in Ireland, I think chef wise at the moment, I mean, Danny Barry is another one I've worked with quite recently and she's just one chef of the year. She's a fantastic person to work with. Takashi, he's fantastic. You know, from Takashi, he's Mizaki and Cork. Um, there's lots, lots. <laughs> I'm lucky that I get to, I suppose, work with them and spend time with them all. It's kind of a unique. Explain to us whenever it comes to the television programmes what your role is because you are behind the scenes but you're playing a very critical role in the actual production of the programme. Yeah, it's a very specific food role that didn't exist in Ireland until the last few years really. When I came back and said I was a food producer, people assumed I was producing some kind of food that was sold. Um, so it was hard to explain. So within, in London, say, for example, within the TV show, you'll always have your sort of story producer who will be in charge of the talent, making sure, you know, you're talking about the content that you're supposed to be. And my role would be the food producer. I would make sure the food was specifically right, that it looked right, that we had sourced the right ingredients, that the chef who was coming on had everything that they needed. Um, we have home ex as well as a separate job and stylists. So there's kind of a lot of people involved, um, making sure they have the correct recipes. So it's really just making sure everything to do with the food when it comes on screen is correct and right and looks good. There must be a savage amount of work involved in that because on a number of occasions, whenever you are filming for TV, you're doing more than one show in one day so you're doing lots and lots of different recipes so just to have everything set up and ready to go the list making must be endless it is all in preparation and you're right because it's very expensive to produce tv i mean there's lots of people making videos now and it's much quicker and easier when you have a full tv crew you usually have two cameras when you shoot a recipe because you need to get various angles to then cut it together so it makes sense um 
And because it's expensive, if you're making six recipes, you're not going to do a recipe every day because then you're going to pay for a crew for six days. So you will try and fit in as many recipes as you can. So it's that constant battle of me going, that's going to take two hours. And they say it's only going to take half an hour. Um, When you work with very talented directors as well, they want it to look as beautiful as possible. That takes time. Um, And it is the preparation. So the idea is that I'm very conscious of that. My role is when we start recording, everything should be ready. So I don't want them to have to wait. If they want an extra orange there or you prepare everything for those eventualities. So a lot of it is just troubleshooting, thinking ahead, going, what what are they going to ask for? What's going to happen? So, yeah, lists are key to everything. You're involved in a lot of food festivals as well and music festivals. Is that did that kind of evolve out of meeting lots of these different chefs or how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, that's a exciting one for me because I've always, food festivals, I suppose, I've been around now a good while and I've always been a really big fan of Taste of Dublin, which was the first one I did. When I lived in London, I still came home every year for Taste of Dublin when I could. And when I got back to Dublin, I sort of saw a gap in the fact that Taste of Dublin was a really good festival, but I didn't think everybody knew about it. So I got in touch with Avril, who runs Taste, and said, this is what I do. I actually approached her with the social media because I had started to do that as a sideline where I was working on social media for content for brands. And I said, look, I think you could do some great content. And you know, it was very much about sponsorship at that stage, the stuff they were posting. So I approached them and did that. And from Taste of Dublin, um, I met the guys who do the Big Grill. And from the Big Grill, they also do Beat Yard. So now Eat Yard. So it's also developed. It's word of mouth. Dublin's very handy for that because it's quite a small place. <laughs> so you, that can happen quite easily. You can just, you know, one job will lead on, lead on to the next. And Big Grill and Beat Yard, they're both on in August time. Yeah. So I just finished on Taste of Dublin. And then Beat Yard is next, which is the 5th and 6th of August. And that is a music festival primarily. But Eat Yard started there. And Eat Yard now is its own entity beside the Bernard Shaw pub in Portobello. It's a street food market with a sort of rotating vendors in there. And it's open four days a week. So we'll bring that back to Beat Yard this year. But we'll also have a stage there because what we've started to do in Eat Yard, just to add value for people coming, is that we do talks and demos and food events there and we'll so we'll do that on a bigger scale so we'll have kind of two days we'll have our own stage basically in the eat yard area where we'll have demos and lots of drinks stuff and kind of people djing and tasting wine and it'll be a mashup of i tried to describe it as like how a, a kitchen party would be so you know if you're at a house party and everybody's in the kitchen it's kind of how i feel it's going to be so it'll be all the chats and the crack and kind of where you want to hang out hopefully so that's up next and then big grill is the 17th to the 20th of August. I love it, Big Grill. It's pretty exciting. We did um, Image Mag Interiors is out at the moment and we did a shoot in that, myself and Andy, with Iman McDonald, who's Limerick as well. And we just went down to the beach and lit a fire and it all was so beautiful. I mean, that's the thing about it. I suppose when I first came on board, I felt like it was quite blokey. So I'm always trying to get more females involved in the big grill and the barbecue side so shout out to any girls who grill to get in touch with us because there's 
there's still lots of scope for things that we haven't done yet. And last year at the Big Grill, they had Sam and Shauna from Hangfire Grill in Wheels, who are really kind of the showcase ladies for barbecues in the UK. They, they're showcase for barbecue full stop. They, it's just really brilliant that they happen to be female. Like they're really on top of their game. Um, and they'll be back this year which is brilliant. So we look forward to having them. And I, yeah, dying to get over there to their place because you, you only hear incredible things. All the rest of the barbecue guys in the UK who we know quite well, like DJ Barbecue and Neil Rankin, and they all rate the Hangfire girls as, you know, top of their game. So it's it's exciting to have that talent that come over to Ireland, you know, and, and definitely we've got a growing scene here, which is great. So those are two big festivals then in August and at the moment then you're involved in the Irish Street Foot Awards. So you'll be looking for people to to enter that. Yeah, so that came about then from Eat Yard and Richard Johnson, who's a food writer in the UK, um, he does lots of writing for The Guardian and various things. He started the British Street Food Awards a couple of years ago and they're having a European street food awards in september in berlin so we decided to do a irish branch of it um so we just kicked it off yesterday open for applications because you know in in dublin you're quite in a bubble i think we know people around us and we know the people who've approached us for eat yards but i know there's way more talent out there and all the farmers markets around the country that like you can't physically get around to and i think a lot of people who are very good and out there at markets all the time if they're not on social media, we can't really find them ourselves. So we put the shout out to ask everybody to apply, to nominate, so we can try and find really the best and exciting talent. And I bet there is some because people are using incredible Irish ingredients. And then we'll whittle it down to like 10 people who will come to Beat Yards, the 5th and 6th. And then we'll have a judging panel there who will choose the winner. And that person then will go to Berlin, hopefully. So that's the plan. An amazing opportunity to really raise your profile on a national and international level. Yeah, I think so. And and I also think that when we do go to Berlin, that whoever comes over from Ireland, like will be, you know, very competitive. I think we'll compete quite well over there because the standard of food here is pretty good at the moment. Did you see a big change in the standard of food in Ireland from when you left to go to London and from when you returned Unbelievable change. Um, I suppose I first moved back in 2011 for a few months and I wasn't exactly enamoured with Dublin and I hated to be that person who came back and was going, in London we have this, in London we have that. But that's sort of how I felt. Um, You know, it was hard to get like one or two places had good coffee. It wasn't standard to have good ingredients and to talk about your good ingredients in a restaurant or even in a cafe and I think in the last few years we've come on leaps and bounds and I know people get a lot of stick over the hipster hipsterization of food or whatever but I think it's fantastic if you're going somewhere and they're naming and they're sourcing gooby and bacon and they've got someone making proper coffee and they're using great sourdough bread I much prefer to be paying a little bit extra or paying the right amount for ingredients and food that are nowhere it's coming from then I suppose a few years ago it would have been a bit more about kind of stuff being trendy or flashy or it 
it, you know, it, it seems to have more authenticity these days. Um, I think there's really exciting places to eat in, in Ireland. And I think we are becoming more conscious about where the food comes from and we are more aware about you do get what you pay for. So if you want the quality, you do have to pay a bit extra for it. Yeah. And I think it's not even that you're paying extra, you know, you're paying the right amount. It's better to, I mean, from working on what are you eating, I always say it's when you look really into the food that we buy and the stuff that's really popular in supermarkets and in cafes and you might buy a sandwich that's two euros cheaper, but it's made from processed bread and it's made very cheaply. And most of the processed ingredients you're paying for water. So it's, it's, it's nice to be able to have a bit more information on what you're eating and to, for people to be talking about it and stuff. So I don't feel, really feel like it's expensive or you're paying more. You're just paying it's good to pay the right amount for food. It should, food shouldn't always be cheap, I don't think. Well, I think people don't appreciate the value of it because they have been so used to buying the lower quality goods. So they, they associate yeah. a certain price with a, with particular product. And it, it is very much about education. Like the programme, what you're eating is was very much about education and trying to make people more aware about those ingredients and about the, I suppose, the crap that goes into some foods. Yeah. I, like it's education, but it's also just circumstance. There's a lot of people who, they, you know, you, if you only have certain shops beside you or you only have a certain amount of time and stuff, it's a lot of effort to eat properly, to buy local, to buy good ingredients. It's, it's not the easiest thing to do. They don't People don't make it easy for us. The shops don't want you to do that. They want you to buy stuff that has longer shelf life that you know they, they want you to buy stuff that makes them bigger margins keeping fresh fruit getting great meats in that sort of stuff is risky as a seller so you have that battle as well um so yeah i think you, you can only do what you can but if you make a little bit of effort as much as you can in certain areas you know it's, it's better better for your health as well absolutely fair good point there definitely so if people want to find out more about you you have a website yeah, I do. It's um, thatalice.com. Um, and I'm not up to date on that that much, but it kind of links to my social. So, you know, Instagram would be my main thing. And that's Ali Dunworth, just on Instagram. So kind of on there a lot. So I like to, I love Instagram. I think it's having its moments, I think for foodies especially. So I love to update that with anything great that I find food wise or exciting. There's a lot of coffee on there as well. So <laughs> I like to make it somewhere people can go and find places to go, if that yeah. makes sense. But yeah. We must check it out to make sure we're drinking our coffee in the right places. And, <laughs> and then for the IrishStreetFoodAwards.com, that's just the website it's, that people need to remember I, there. Yeah, IrishStreetFoodAwards.com and you can go on there and you can nominate and you can apply on there. Um, and like anyone can get in touch and ask us any questions. We're open to, you know, all applications. Anyone who's, cooking food sort of outside of the confines of a traditional restaurant I suppose it's street food so whether you're on the street or in a market or in your yard or whatever we kind of want to hear from everybody 
Okay, great. Yeah. It would it'd be fantastic to see somebody from Ireland doing really well over in Berlin. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for really fantastic entries. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time and continued success with your absolutely fantastic career. You really are a great example of what somebody can do that comes back from London and brings all those different skills with them, but has that get up and go and really puts themselves out there and makes it all happen for them. So fair play to you. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. You're very welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I had a lovely chat with Ali Dunworth, who's doing amazing work on the food circuit in Ireland. And at the start of the programme, Ron Forrestal and I had a long and interesting conversation all about gin. If you're just tuning in now, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 9am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com and also on iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also now available to hear on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. So it's time now for our last guest of this evening and it's our regular contributor, Caroline Gray, who's the editor of Easy Food magazine and she's going to tell us all about the latest issue. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Caroline, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks so much, Sharon. And you have your summer special out at the moment. We do, yeah. So it's our... Big um, June, July kind of, yeah, exactly, our big summer special. So it's one of our favorites of the year. And as usual, it's just packed with loads of nice ideas for barbecues and kind of some no-cook recipe ideas and obviously loads of sweet stuff as well. And you have a very well-known face who is the editor this month. We do, yeah. So we have um, Rachel Allen as our guest editor for this issue, which we're delighted with. So Rachel was actually the guest editor for us maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago now. So uh, we were really excited to have her back. And, um, you know, she's always great to work with. So she's featuring some recipes from her latest cookbook. Um, and that's just called Recipes for My Mother. So it's nice in that it's uh, a lot of recipes then. And her mother is from Iceland. So there's a lot of Scandinavian dishes in there. But then it's nice because she kind of took a twist with the book and included a lot of recipes from some of her friends' mothers and just kind of, um, you know, I suppose just recipes that have been handed down, which is great because that's kind of what easy food is all about as well. I did not know that her mother was from Iceland, so that's a bit of news to me. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, it's cool. So yeah, apparently her mother is from um, Iceland and she moved to England and I think maybe that's where she met her father. I'm not too sure, Uh, but she moved over... uh, to Ireland then anyway. And so Rachel was saying it's, it's always great growing up because they had a lot of, you know, it wasn't so many Scandinavian dishes, I suppose, as just ingredients. Like they would have eaten a lot of fish and um, lamb. And she says in a way, you know, it's quite common to kind of Irish cooking anyway. So, you know, her mom was kind of the queen of like one pot meals and casseroles and stews and everything like that. So uh, she was just, you know, I, I suppose, in a way, just like, you know, so many mothers, it was just kind of following her around the kitchen and just kind of being at her apron strings that kind of got her so interested in cooking. And she said it was just such a nice treat to be able to sit down and really put the cookbook together because, you know, the way like you kind of get snippets here and there of some of the family's, you know, kind of cooking history, but being able to 
really talk to her mom about it. She said it was just, you know, it was just so enjoyable for herself. You mentioned lamb there and there's an absolutely stunning piece of lamb there, the slow roast shoulder of lamb oh, with cumin and yeah, coriander. Oh yeah, that looks stunning. And I think she said that's one of her favorite go-to recipes anyway. Um, and like that, it's just like a big shoulder of lamb and it's, I think, just slow roasted with like kind of cumin and some different spices. And like Rachel says in there, it's one of those great ones because once you kind of have the marinator is kind of the spice rub on it. You just leave it for a few hours and you come back and you have this beautiful, perfectly cooked uh, joint of meat waiting for you. And um, it's one of those as well. Like even if you have leftovers, it's always great to throw that kind of meat into like sandwiches or salads. Uh, there's actually loads you can do with it. And so few ingredients required for that. Like there's cumin seeds, coriander seeds, your sea yeah. salt, your peppercorns and some olive oil as well as your, your shoulder of lamb. That's it. And that's not, I think you probably really need it. Like, you know, especially with lamb, it has, you know, a nice flavor on its own. So just kind of those sort of like warm spices would really bring out um, kind of how it is just probably cooked naturally in its best state. Um, but yeah, that was a, it was a great recipe and kind of like that, you know, the fact that she says it's one of herself that she just uses all the time for her family. Um, you know, that's a keeper. <laughs> Well, that caught my eye because of the image of the, the lamb shoulder just looked so delicious. Another image that caught my eye was the meringue kiss cake. Oh, yeah, that was a really fun one. Um, and that was kind of a feature on um, different levels of baking. So it's kind of this faker to baker uh, mentality where or this kind of idea where you can kind of start off baking some really simple things like and there's those cupcakes with like the ice cream cones on the top and that meringue kiss cake is sort of the final stage of um you know when you've sort of reached your maximum baker capacity but even that you know we made it in the office and it's just so stunning because it's this like uh i believe it's like kind of vanilla sponge cake and a cherry buttercream and then it's actually just when you have the pieces together you know it's a few layers of cake and then this really beautiful turquoise um, buttercream on the outside, some sprinkles, and you kind of layer the meringues around it. So once you have the cake made and the meringues, it's it's actually not so difficult to make, but it's so beautiful looking that I'd say if you brought that to a party, like a, a kid's birthday party or, you know, kind of any celebration, like, you know, adults would love that for a birthday cake as well, I'd say. Um, I think you'd be, you know, definitely sure to impress anybody there. Well, if it tastes as good as it looks, because it certainly has the wow yeah. factor whenever you look it at it. It has the wow factor and it does. It definitely tastes, it tasted amazing. <laughs> now tell us what Jocelyn Doyle has been up to. That's your recipe editor because she has been out and about on her travels. Yeah, so Jocelyn, like she's always good about, uh, you know, visiting any kind of food festivals or small producers. And um, yeah, so this one and Jocelyn is a huge fan of Irish farmhouse cheeses. Um, so in this uh, in this article, she was at the Burn Slow Food Festival, and she kind of uh, did a bit of gin tasting, and you know she admittedly more of a whiskey fan herself. But uh, when it kind of got to the raw milk cheeses, that was the other part of this festival. You know, there is where she's in her element. So she kind of found uh, a brand new cheese that she hadn't heard of before, which for her is you know very exciting. It's this Clun uh, Conras cheese, and um, it's just really you know, fresh, it kind of has just, I suppose, a really great summery bite to it in that you can use it in, um, you know, even just on its own. But the way we did here, we kind of made these little bruschetta-like toasts. So it was kind of some minty peas and some fresh lemon flavors. And then the cheese just kind of sprinkled over the top of it. 
And they were absolutely delicious. Like, you know, she's saying in her article here that it's the perfect kind of treat if you were to take it on the go, have for a nice summery picnic. Um, you know, she's always one. She loves having even just some kind of nice bread and cheese or something for breakfast. So it's it's an all-arounder, just wonderful. And it's available in like Sheridan's Cheese Bongers um, and Clontarf Wines. So you can definitely find it around. And for any more information about it, you can find it in the um, – Burn Slow Food Festival website as well. A great part of the country, and we had Birgitta from Burn Smoked Salmon fame, who guest presented one of the shows there a month or so ago, and it was specifically about all the fantastic produce and alcohol great. that is available in the Burn. You know, it's great to just kind of get around and see everything that's going on, and you know, when you find a hidden gem like that, you know, especially something like a cheese that you might not have seen before, and it's kind of suddenly you know, gaining a bit of momentum, it's great to support those, you know, the cheesemakers and just any kind of the, you know, small pro, uh, small artisan producers around. Now, at this time of the year, we cannot avoid the, the strawberries. Thankfully, we don't want to be avoiding them. And you've quite exactly. a few strawberry dishes in the, in the magazine this month. We do. Yeah, we figure, you know, it's one of it's, it's you know, any anytime you can get good ones, it's it always works so well in just you know, whether it's a healthy breakfast or dessert, um, obviously just eating them on their own is, you can't go wrong with that. Um, and so, yeah, so we have a kind of nice feature just on different ways to sort of incorporate it, incorporate strawberries, um, throughout your day. So whether it's just kind of taking them on the go or packing them into, you know, the kids' lunch boxes or kind of making some, uh, sort of like healthy treats for them, you know, there's kind of some great ideas. You could sort of thread them with other fruits onto little cocktail skewers or use them with some other frozen fruits into a nice healthy smoothie. Um, and then you can kind of get really fancy with it too. So we made this gorgeous uh, strawberry meal dessert. So that's just basically like puff pastry layered with a nice sweet cream and fresh strawberries. And kind of like the meringue cake, it's not that difficult to make at all, uh, but it's so impressive. It's really stunning. So, you know, if, especially if you're going to like a nice occasion or a party or something, that's a nice one to bring along. And parties at the moment usually means barbecues. And we're so lucky that we have had a spell of fine weather. And it's always great when you go to a barbecue and you get unusual or different types of um, dishes added rather than just your burgers and your your sausages. And that's what Michael Fleming, your local butcher, is focusing on in his column this month. That's right. So, yeah, so Michael's great. He'll always, um, you know, kind of just include some nice, tips just to make the most, I suppose, of different things that you can barbecue. And, you know, it doesn't just have to be your kind of bog standard burger or just plain sausage. But even if that's what people are looking for, um, you know, try some different types of sausages from your butchers and ask them, you know, maybe some of the recommendations they might have, or, you know, they can make burgers out of other meats. If you do find something, you know, if it's a combination of a few, uh, they're, the best source of information. So definitely, um, whether it's something as simple as just buying a different variety or kind of switching it up and barbecuing something else, um, there's, you know, no limit in sight. And of course, I mean, you can't go wrong with just burgers and sausages also. And you have um, a couple of pages there devoted to like jizzing up the burgers, the building Mm -hmm. blocks for the burgers. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of, you know, I mean, every summer, like I said, you know, there's always going to be the favorites. People are always going to want to know to see sausages and burgers and the kind of a nice few sides or salads at a barbecue. So what we've done um, with this issue is just put some of our basic tips for making sure you cook 
the perfect burger or, you know, how to cook sausages properly, just as that they're not cremated when people arrive, but also that you're kind of, you know, making sure to leave enough time for everything. And so you can kind of enjoy it yourself. Um, so that we've gone from just including the basics for burgers and sausages and some sides, you know, like coleslaw or potato salad, um, and then done a few twists on them. So, you know, if you wanted to throw a themed barbecue, there's so many different varieties out there. So we have some ideas for, you know, just a really great classic barbecue, um, with just some kind of nice kind of sweet and smoky elements to it. Um, to a Mexican barbecue, which would have a lot of really great kind of fresh, vibrant, and spicy flavors. Um, what else? We also have the Asian barbecue. So it kind of just twists on some of the favorite, some of the, I suppose, dishes you might associate with, you know, those types of cuisines converted into barbecue friendly fare. So some really kind of fun ideas in there and like that. I mean, when you get the weather for a barbecue, it's kind of nice to do something a bit different. Absolutely. And there definitely is lots of inspiration there just to jazz Mm -hmm. it up a bit and take it to a different level. That's it. Oh, definitely. And that's, you know, I suppose because people are so familiar with it, you know, you might sometimes you can end up standing at a barbecue and you're kind of just eating away or you have your burger, you have your hot, you know, sausage. Um, So it's kind of nice to throw a little bit of a different twist on it. You know, people definitely remember that. And it takes no more work than, you know, if you were just to kind of go down the traditional route anyway. And finally, then you've one super recipe here that I will be trying at home. It's it's there under the Easy Juniors banner, the five minute banana peanut ice cream. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's it. It's so easy. And it's really tasty. Um, like that. I mean, it's kind of a homemade uh, ice cream, I suppose that all you really have to use are frozen bananas, um, some peanut butter and, you know, preferably one that doesn't have kind of any added sugars or added salts or anything, um, and milk just to thin it out. And you basically just blend them together and you get this really nice texture. Uh, you know, it'd be a bit softer than a traditional ice cream, but even if you wanted it to be firmer, you just pop it into the freezer a bit longer. And then, you know, the classic combination I find of uh, chocolate and peanut butter. So if you serve that with just some chocolate chips or even chocolate sauce, uh, kids absolutely love it. Tell me now, whenever you're freezing the bananas, do you peel them before you freeze them? Is that a really stupid Uh, question? Not at all, because you know what? I've done both. Um, I find it easier to peel them ahead of time. Some people don't, because I suppose then that way you can just throw them right in the freezer. Now, me personally, I found when I freeze them with the peels, um, sometimes I have trouble getting them off. So if you just peel the banana, you can even chop it into the pieces you want. Because for the most part, if you're using a frozen banana, you're you're probably going to be using it in a blender or smoothies or somewhere you're going to not want it in one big chunk. So yeah, I'd say to peel it, chop it, throw it in a baggie, and then you're good to go. Well, great to talk to you as always, Caroline. Thanks a million for telling us all about it tonight. And you'll be back after the summer then, I take it. Definitely, yeah. Back back to our, uh, you know, just usual monthly issues then. Have a brilliant summer and I shall talk Thanks. to you in the autumn. Super. Thanks, Sharon. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Lovely to talk to Caroline and my thanks to her and to tonight's other guests, Ron Forrestal and Ali Dunworth. Thank you so much for listening, for tuning in. Your company is always very welcome. If you've missed any of tonight's show or you want to listen to some of the previous shows of Best Possible Taste, be sure to check them out on SharonNoonan.com. Until next week, take care and bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with the best possible taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit.